Hello, and welcome to IRI Growth Insights C-Suite Conversations. I'm your host, John McIndoe, Chief Marketing Officer here at IRI. IRI integrates big data, predictive analytics, and forward-looking insights to help companies in the CPG, retail, and healthcare and media markets grow their businesses. We also share our thought leadership with the industry at large with the goal of addressing and tackling key challenges within our industry. Our special C-Suite Conversation Series features notable leaders talking about this future of CPG and retail. In this episode, we're getting our first sip, so to speak, of the luxury brands market as we're joined by Seth Kaufman, President and CEO of Moet Hennessy, North America, maker of upscale wine and spirits brands, which in addition to Hennessy include Moté Chandon, Veuve Clicquot, Dom Perignon, Krug, Glenmorangie, and many others. Seth took the helm of Moet Hennessy North America in January 2020, just ahead of the COVID-19 pandemic. Previously, Seth was with PepsiCo, where he has held a series of marketing, sales, and management roles across an 18-year tenure. Most recently, he served as president of PepsiCo North America Nutrition and the Hive Emerging Brand Unit. Moet is finding that people are spending on premium products during the pandemic. So our timing of today's conversation is, as they say, apropos. Leading the conversation today is KK DeVay, president of IRI Strategic Analytics and a member of the IRI executive leadership team. KK has been leading the IRI thought leadership and CPG economic indicators dashboard initiatives here at IRI, which are among the other invaluable resources you can access at iriworldwide.com. With that, it's my distinct pleasure to turn it over to you and to Seth. Thank you, John, and uh, welcome, Seth. Uh, Thanks, KK. I've enjoyed working with you for so many years at PepsiCo, and it's great to see you here at uh, Moet. Uh, very excited to discuss uh, CPG and retail trends with you today. As you uh, know, we have been uh, doing this series with a number of manufacturers and retailers, and this is the first time we're going to have a very premium high-end uh, manufacturer like you. And actually, today, we are releasing a thought leadership report on the premium opportunity across the entire CPG uh, and retail sector, uh, because we do see that uh, you know during the pandemic, there's a lot of trading up going on, even though we all expected trading down to happen because of the recession. Anyway, before we get to um, the set of uh, questions and discussions, uh, I want to just warm us both up with a few questions, uh, personal questions, just to kind of get a flavor for who you are, for our audience to get a flavor for who you are. I want to ask you which of your brands are your most favorite, but I'd like to know, or we would like to know, Bubbles or Still? Both. Both. Okay, that's interesting. I guess it depends on the occasion. Huh? Uh, what has your personal in consumption changed? How has your personal in-home in consumption changed uh, since outbreak? Uh, like many of our target consumers, um, it's been it's been great to actually be home and have different occasions and different ways to try and consume many of our different products. I will also say that I've tried my hand at uh, trying to master cocktails during this pandemic. So 
I certainly am not a professional mixologist, but I at least can make a handful of uh, different wonderful cocktails with our champagnes, with our spirits, and uh, I'm getting better each day, I'd say, KK. That's great. That's better than mixing uh, carbonated soft drinks, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what new behavior set have you really embraced uh, during the pandemic that is likely to stick with you uh, post-pandemic? I mean, just from a personal standpoint, I was already, and my whole family was already very, very big consumers of e-commerce. I would say within the category that I lead, the categories that I lead, wine and spirits, my personal behavior was generally to buy stuff at stores and bring it home. But that has shifted quite substantially to e-commerce in my own categories as well. And I know from not just the research we've done, but also looking at uh, friends and family, their consumption habits are pivoting quite significantly there too as well. So, you know, I know we're going to get into that shift, but uh, even personally, I've certainly adopted in, in a much more substantial way, wine and spirits delivered right to my front door. My big pivot and a wonderful pivot, dinner with the family every night. And I yeah. tell you, it's been an incredible gift. I, uh, I've so valued that time. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges with the pandemic. Uh, not being able to travel, not being able to see my team in person, but sitting around the dinner table every night with my family, with my kids and my wonderful wife has been uh, a really, really great gift. Yeah. That's, I think that's a consistent theme that we are hearing from many of us and including our own uh, uh, you know, household. Uh, Seth, transitioning to, um, uh, to Moet from PepsiCo, right? Um, and seeing, overseeing from nutrition to luxury spirit brands. How, how has that gone so far? And, and also the, the, the pandemic, which you alluded to in a minute, uh, a few minutes ago. So how has that whole transition gone? And, you know, just, just share some perspectives. So. Yeah, I, I'll start from the perspective of um, it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, I started uh, a little over a year ago and had the opportunity to spend four months traveling around the world, really learning our business and spending time with our maison, mm-hmm. um, as a luxury company and within the wine and spirits world with just incredible houses, maison across the world, really understanding and learning those was critical. So spending a week in Champagne, spending a week in Cognac, spending a week in Scotland, learning our Scotch business, uh, spending time in Napa, and then you know traveling to different parts of the world to see our business, but also throughout the United States to meet our distributors, meet our retail partners, meet our on-premise partners, and meet the team was great. And that gift of four months of onboarding before taking, the, taking over the business January 1st was great and paid really, really significant dividends, especially mm-hmm. given we went into a crisis because it would have been you know, really, really challenging to learn the business without having gone to our very, very special houses, which formed the foundation of, of who we are. So you know, KK, the transition was great. I, I'll say that the two biggest pivots versus what I was used to, um, one is you know, luxury is different. And understanding that and learning that, I was a luxury consumer, um, but certainly I didn't operate in the luxury space from a business leadership perspective. So that was one. And then the other is, you know, I've been I've been a fan of French culture. Um, I'm a cyclist, so a huge fan of 
cycling and the Tour de France, have been to France many times before, have ridden in the French Alps, in the French Pyrenees. Um, but the opportunity, given we are based in France, to really understand at a deeper level French culture and how that impacts our business was a really, really important part of the onboarding as well and something that uh, I, I very much valued. I've learned from both business-wise and personally and, uh, and try to think about that each and every day in, in my role. Yeah, and so, um, and, and how has the pandemic really, um, you, know, you know, helped you pivot or change or adjust what you're planning to do in January when you kind of took over here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, it's changed a lot, right? So we had started by doing some uh, some strategic work as, as far as where we wanted to take the business over the next decade. Um, we continued that work in the beginning of the pandemic because we wanted to make sure that we had the blueprint for where we were going. Mm -hmm. And I guess, KK, what I would say is I am pleasantly surprised with how effectively we as a team have been able to operate in this pandemic. Um, I, I, I was doing roundtables in person. It was important for me to meet each and every one of, uh, of my employees. I took that from my mentor, uh, someone that you and I both know, Al Carey, and the importance of servant leadership, and actually continued those roundtables at home via Zoom. And you could say, hey, that's not very personal, but I will say it actually allowed deeper engagement and I think to get a little bit more personal. So, so I continued that, you know, as a leadership team, we uh, for many months had daily crisis calls via Zoom. We got to know each other as a leadership team in a significant way, which helped us operate the business. It allowed me to learn the business much faster probably than in a non-crisis setting. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the other thing that we did from an employee-based perspective is really, really high on communication. So we, you know, we, we've done a lot of um, company Zoom calls. Uh, we post the, uh, the horrific murder of George Floyd and the, the very, very serious um, movement around uh, social injustice in this country. We did a lot of forums mm -hmm. around that that allowed our employees to engage with one another. So even before I get to how the business has changed, it's important for me to start from a how to lead and how we as a team have operated. And we've done it in a way that is, I think, as personal it can be while being totally disconnected um, in, in physical settings. Seth, it's interesting you mentioned uh, servant leader. Uh, I'll carry you and I know very well, but many of our audience may not. Would you mind elaborating a little bit on that and um, and just kind of giving us a flavor of what does that mean? Yeah, it's extremely important, more so in this time. But yeah, of course. Um, so look, it starts from the perspective of uh, the 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 leader's job is to obviously connect the dots and understand the business enough to set the vision and strategy for the business. But then after deploying that strategy and vision throughout the organization, the most important thing that I can do as a leader each and every day is break down the barriers and obstacles that get in the way of my team achieving that vision, that strategy. And the easiest way to accomplish that is by literally flipping the organization upside down so that the most important person in the organization, the person at the top of the org chart, if you will, 
is the person closest to the consumer. And there's no scenario where the, the, you know, the CEO of a business will know more about what's going on than that person on the front line, than that person closest to transactions. So having the humility to understand that that front line, the people engaging with customers, the people seeing our consumers every day, um, know the most and need to be empowered to make decisions in real time to drive the business is a really, really important realization and then a way to operate going forward in support of the business. So it obviously takes um, coaching and development to build the right team. It takes having the right people in the right seats, you know, in the right roles and operating the way that they will. But then empowering the teams, pushing decision-making deep, deep, deep down in the organization. And then as a leader and as a leadership team, we operate consistently with what are the obstacles getting in the way of success? How do we break down those obstacles for our employees? And that ultimately helps achieve the vision and strategy of the business. So that's the core of what servant leadership is, at least as far as the Al Carey School of Servant Leadership that I went to. That's great, that's fabulous, because these are kinds of things, even though we want to talk about business, I think some of these uh, uh, nuggets of management wisdom are very helpful to our audience. That's really the feedback we have gotten. Now we'll transition uh, a little bit to uh, your business, right? Uh, many of your well-known brands are often consumed on-premise, and on-premise is now, you know, it's uh, it's devastated, right? The business is not doing well uh, with restrictions for on-premise. How are you managing, you know? How, how, how is the business kind of managing itself and uh, what are you doing to shepherd the business in that way? Yeah, and you know, I'll start from the perspective of Moet Hennessy is all about crafting experiences for our consumers. Yeah. And you know, we are luxury brands that have incredible savoir-faire and you know, hundreds, plural, year histories. So when the crisis began, the team thinking about how to continue to craft experiences, but in a new context, has been the biggest unlock to what has been a record year of performance. Yes, KK, um, our consumers are no longer going into bars, restaurants, hotels, nightclubs. Um, In some geographies, not at all. In other geographies, much less than they have before. But the team's agility in pivoting and creating the opportunity for consumers to experience our brands in different ways at home had been has been a massive, massive unlock for the business. I'll just give you, I'll take one category mm-hmm. as an example, which is you would think champagne as a category would have a really, really challenging year, given it's not necessarily a year of celebrating. And we had a difficult April and May. Um, you know, March, we started to see what was going on, started to slow down. And April and May were challenging, at least the first part of May. But the team really thought long and hard about how to create experiences at home mm-hmm. and celebrate still in the context of wonderful yeah. things. For example, a program around Miss Milestones, where it was all about in a year where you know mm-hmm. people can't go out and celebrate their anniversaries, celebrate their birthdays, have affairs like weddings, 
um, creating the tools, the scenarios, and the virtual settings to be able to create similar moments of celebration at home has been a massive, massive tailwind for the champagne business in a year that champagne is outperforming any of our expectations in the beginning of the year, and I think has more tailwind than it's had in quite some time. So that's one, which is literally the agility for the team to create different kinds of experiences, but still grounded in who our maisons are, what the special sauce that they can bring to different uh, occasions are. And then, you know, it goes without saying that e-commerce has become super, super critical. Our maisons tell incredible stories and digital platforms are a phenomenal way to tell those stories. So we put a lot of resource into e-commerce and the, you know, we started with great momentum, but we had lost a little bit of share in the beginning because so many companies were pouring resource into e-commerce, but we kept at it, continued to resource. And not only have we captured back the share that we lost in the very beginning, but now we're in a much better share position in e-commerce than we were before the crisis. And I'm quite confident that that will pay dividends for years and years to come. So look, KK, it's been devastating for a lot of our on-premise customers. And I, I, I can't understate that enough um, because it is, it is something that we are together with our partners trying to help them rebuild. And I know we're going to get into some of the ways that we're doing that, yeah. but the yeah. business itself has been incredibly resilient. Hennessy, Glenmorangie, Ardbeg, Dom Perignon, Montachandon, Krug, Renar, Volcan, our new tequila, Woodenville, our incredible bourbon and rye from Washington. They've all really outperformed expectations. And I think it's a huge statement on the power of agility of a team, creativity of a team, and dedication to think about new moments of consumption in this very, very different time. That's that's very very intriguing and interesting. Um, how has your marketing spend evolved, right? Because I think you are um, like some others over-indexed on sports and sports-related uh, marketing. You know, how have you shifted that, and uh, what are your plans to the extent you can disclose them? Yeah. Yeah. So look, yes, on sports, but I'd say more prominently on in-person activations well yeah. beyond sports. Um, yeah. Obviously a very, very challenging time for that. But, um, you know, a big piece of the pivot has been creating virtual experiences um, that still engage consumers in a very, very material way. So um, doing tastings for our prestige brands is a, a really, really important part of our business. Well, we've had our ambassadors, hosts, tons and tons of virtual tastings where our consumers are incredibly engaged. Um, we've had our winemakers and our master distillers do experiences in partnership with some of our retail partners through virtual experiences that has really, really had a material impact on the business. And even something like Vov Clicquot, which is one of our most special maisons, um, has had something called the Polo Classic in both New York and California for uh, about a decade, um, huge in-person event, um, you know, tons of celebrities go, great moment to experience Vov Clicquot um, in a setting outdoors. 
And obviously not a year that we could do that. So the team did a virtual Polo Classic. And, you know, I just last week was taken through the results of that. And both from a consumer engagement perspective, as well as an impression perspective, it exceeded all of our expectations. And then if you just look at the health of Clicquot's business this year, um, it gives us the confidence that it's not just that we're deploying these resources in a different way and that it's working from an impressions and an engagement perspective, but it's mm-hmm. actually driving the business in a really, really material way. So we've had to be creative with the marketing spend. Um, I'm super, super proud of the team and how they've done it. And you know, the results have proven that it works. And I think what it'll do for us, KK, is, is in a post-COVID world, um, it'll give us a lot more ideas around different ways that we can engage our consumers. And it'll be probably a model of going back to some of what we used to do, mm-hmm. in addition to doing some mm-hmm. of this new stuff, even in a post-COVID world. That's great. That, you know, this is very, very interesting, I'm sure. Uh, lots of lessons to learn here for a number of other brands. One question, how is your supply chain coping up with this demand, right? You can't simply create more champagne or cognac or scotch. It has to age. So how is that uh, working out? Any any insights? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, coming from an industry where, you know, as long as you have the uh, the raw ingredients in the supply, you could you could make it. Um, to an industry where it's about um, obviously aging in a material way. Um, It's a a huge pivot. But uh, our Maisons have done a wonderful job of supplying um, the demand. And, you know, have we had some challenges? Yes. Have we had some hiccups? Yes. Have we overcome all of that in creative ways throughout the entire supply chain? Yes. And, you know, I'm... I'm really, really happy with how we've been able to keep the momentum of the business and not have too much disruption within the supply chain. Um, even in scenarios where um, some of our you know, maisons had to be closed down for some period of time and, and could not produce, um, they made up for it. So we, we enter fourth quarter or we're in the midst of fourth quarter with a very, very tight supply situation across champagne, across cognac, um, certainly across our, our single malts, um, but the team has been creative in how they're deploying the products. And I, I'm very, very happy at how we're creating value, even in a challenging supply environment. But uh, yeah, it is certainly uh, different than making soft drinks, making bottled water, uh, making potato chips, or making tortilla chips. How do you maintain your brand and price position? Uh, has that changed in any uh, any shape or size or I guess less promotions? Have you taken up the price because of supply constraints or? Yeah, look, um, we try to be as data informed as possible and yeah. um, we're building capability uh, with respect to, to kind of data and analytics capability. Um, we are luxury products. And there's a willingness to pay for our products that is certainly well above products that are not luxury. Um, We we would be crazy to not think about optimizing promo spend, to not think about some of that this year. At the same time, KK, um, we don't want to take advantage of our consumers. 
Um, and, you know, I, I will say, especially, you know, uh, let's just take a brand like Hennessy. And many of Hennessy's core consumers have been impacted negatively during the pandemic more than other consumers. So for us to take price up during yep. that time is actually working against the consumers that have helped us build this incredible business in the US. So we've used data and analytics to inform our approach. Um, again, we'd be crazy not to figure out how to try to optimize it, but we've been very, very careful, very careful not to, not to move too much and too aggressively against our consumers who have been loyal, who still love our brand and who our Maisons and our brands very much also love our consumers. So it's a balance. It's absolutely yeah. a balance. Got it. So, you know, one of the um, trends that's happening with uh, COVID, particularly in cities like New York and San Francisco and others is de-densification, right? People are kind of moving out of uh, uh, cities in particular and kind of trying to get more space, right? Um, and your marketing and your focus, I believe, traditionally has been more on cities to kind of capture because that's where most of the affluent consumers live. Is that uh, impacted in any particular way? Are you kind of, uh, you know, changing your, your direction to kind of go after the consumers in a more diverse way? Or you know, how are you doing uh, this? Yeah, so I'll start from, uh, yes, we are... Uh, very strong in cities, but we're also strong in suburbs and in, in many rural areas. That said, there's opportunity as this movement happens to, to capitalize on that movement and, and resource in a different way. So one of the things yeah. that we did, we, we built a 10-year strategy for the business. I mentioned that before. Yeah. And one of the strategic imperatives in that is to really, really think about growth geographies and how we should resource in those growth geographies. And we went through a few months ago, um, uh, a reorganization in support of the 10-year strategy. And in that, we put a lot more human resources against mm -hmm. the geographies where consumers were moving to versus where they're moving away from. We also have deployed more absolute capital to those geographies. So I feel really, really good about how the team is using the data around the, um, the, the shifts as far as where people are living and where people are shopping. And I think it's been part of KK, the success this year. I really, really believe that because of how we're activating, not just in city centers, but in suburbs and in rural areas. Um, and there was also a point in the pandemic, less so now, but a point in the pandemic where consumers were going to kind of their escape geographies, whatever that was. And we made sure yeah. to over-resource those as well to make sure we were fully capitalizing on that opportunity. I believe Boise, Idaho falls in that category, Portland, <laughs> Oregon. What are some of the tools you continue, continuously turn to in terms of data and analytics to help you navigate both different elements of your business, uh, like categories, consumer behavior, consumption patterns, forecasting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of different tools. Um, and, you know, transparently, we are just building our capability in order to integrate those tools with one another in order mm -hmm. to make faster decisions. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, 
thinking about you know everything from primary consumer research to syndicated to looking at our customer data to looking at shipment data to understanding our distributors data um, to to breaking down some of the data that we're getting from some of the e-commerce partners is all critically important the one thing that we try hard though to guard against kk is you know the the cliche analysis paralysis and yeah. this goes back to the servant leadership thing that i talked about before because i will say that some of our most important data and i'll do the air quotes on data comes from our employees who are closest to the consumer and it's their stories and it's what yeah. they're seeing so i think the team's done a really really nice job of integrating the hard data with the soft data that we mm-hmm. get from our colleagues on the front line in order to make quick decisions and hopefully the right decisions in support of the business. So, you know, I'm I'm really really satisfied with the data and analytics capability we are building, but we're not doing that alone. It has to be also about the the nuanced understanding of what's going on in the marketplace and the best sources of that many many times are our employees on the front line. So it's more a consumer centricity as opposed to uh, AI, data science. I see a lot of companies trying to invest in a lot of those things as a as a, as a separate means and an end. Whereas what you're saying is, hey, I really need this working with what my frontline is seeing and kind of enhance the the hard data with soft data. Like 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 many other companies, we're obviously um, using AI. Yeah. and other means with the data. KK, that is not separate from consumer centricity. In fact, yeah. consumer centricity is at the very core of that, but it's much more than that. And sometimes the most powerful insights are qualitative in nature. Um, yeah. As long as we're not asking questions to get an answer that we want, if yeah. we're asking questions to get the real answer, those qualitative insights can be combined with very very hardcore number crunching can yeah. be combined with projective algorithms to get to an outcome that you wouldn't have been able to do without bringing that qualitative aspect into it in the first place but consumer centricity is absolutely at the heart of whether it's the hard data the soft data whether it's someone anecdotally telling a story about an observation of a consumer or something that we're talking about in headquarters we are every single day super super consumer centric and i will say as a part of that one of the things that we've been really really focused on is wine and spirits as repertoire category and how the same consumer consumes different things in different contexts and that a lot of times is at the core of how we deploy different programming in different settings to be able to have strong velocity and strong engagement with our products i would assume you brought a, a bunch of that consumer centricity from your past experiences here right the the industry was not that advanced if i remember a few years ago in terms of how they use consumer data here yeah it, it, and kk what i would say is there's there's a, a couple or few things that i really wanted to bring from a quote unquote traditional cpg environment And mm-hmm. then there's many things that are quite different because not only are we wine and spirits but we're luxury. So yeah. the two biggest things, the two biggest things that were absolutely critical for me from CPG to apply in this business is consumer centricity with a best in class data and analytics capability wrapped around that and then really really buttoned up commercial planning. 
um, with clear priorities in each time window. The, mm -hmm. Those are things that have added massive value to our wine and spirits luxury business. But then, you know, in a luxury business, there's many things that are quite different from CPG, and we don't have time to go into those today, but I have tried to listen as much as I've tried to bring ideas because I'm new at learning the luxury business. And I can tell you, I have incredibly talented folks around me and my own team, but then I also have the opportunity across LVMH to learn from my colleagues at our other Maison in luxury, and then take some of those learnings and try to apply them in our wine and spirits portfolio. I would be interested in your perspectives on uh, hot salsa trends uh, that that is going on in your industry in the in the beer wine spirit parts of your industry. Any any perspectives as to how you view it, given your soft drinks background and now the moyet background? Yeah, look, uh, consumers are clearly voting with their wallets and their engagement right now. Um, it, there there was an unmet need in the marketplace for some bit of convenience combined with, you know, the occasions that consumers consume uh, these different spirit, seltzer, et cetera, categories. And um, what I would say, and, and you know, I, I've been over the last several weeks talking to a lot of partners about this, including our retail partners to understand what they're seeing. And what I think the jury is out is as the category gets more and more crowded, is it really driving incrementality or is there just share moving from one supplier to another? And mm -hmm. we've seen this happen with many, many other categories. So, you know, it's my job that if we were ever going to deploy something in the space, um, that it would have clear benefits around unmet needs that exist in the marketplace right now. So thinking about the emotional and functional needs of consumers thinking about whether one of our incredible Maisons may be able to deliver a, a, a product that can meet those unmet needs is a huge filter of mine. And stay tuned for what, um, for what you might see down the road there, but it's certainly a category uh, or a set of categories with a lot of energy. Um, yeah. you know, as a luxury wine and spirits company, the team has thought a lot about how, how to create value for ourselves, but also for our partners if we mm -hmm. were to deploy something in the space, but clearly meeting an unmet, an unmet need. And that's why so many consumers are voting with their dollars in the space. I'll pivot to a different topic. Um, here in the US, we're all uh, we're also wrestling with many social issues, including diversity, equality, and inclusion. Right? What does this look like in your world and how are you addressing it? Yeah, I, it's, it's such a great question for us because it is, it's so near and dear to, to our hearts. Um, and, you know, I, I, maybe what I'll do is I'll use one of our brands to, mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about this. So COVID has disproportionately impacted minority communities. Um, yeah. Fact. Yeah. Uh, the recovery, um, the stimulus package also disproportionately did not go to minority communities. Yeah. Um, Hennessy, given our role in many of these communities, saw this as a huge problem, um, saw the systemic racism in this country 
as a huge problem and felt that we had an obligation given what was going on. So we actually created a program called Unfinished Business Mm -hmm. uh, with the goal being to provide capital as well as mentorship, advice, et cetera, to small businesses that were um, Black-owned, Latinx-owned, or Asian-American-owned. And we worked with three partners in order to pick the small businesses that would receive the support. The partners are 100 Black Men, the Hispanic Federation, and the Asian-American Business Development Center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we put this program out in the world and, you know, we got 17,000 applications. Um, we are getting close to having supported 2,000 small businesses with capital wow. and tons additional with mentorship and other support that they needed because not all of the applicants needed capital. And we are now about to deploy a second round of funding for that. We have many of our external partners also engaged in it and putting their money into this pot. And I feel really good about the impact that we're having for many of these small businesses that were the staples of their community Mm -hmm. and were at massive risk for never being around again because of the the disproportionate impact on their communities and then the inability to get access to capital and support that they mm-hmm. needed. So I start from there, from, from that example. Um, and yep. then, you know, KK, the other thing that I would say is we spent a lot of time, not just as a leadership team, but as a company overall, working on our I, D, and E agenda. And I think the E is critical. It's inclusion, diversity, and equity. And if mm-hmm. you don't have all three, You cannot make the right progress. So we're working a lot on how we change our own processes, how we change Mm -hmm. um, the makeup of a leadership team, what we could do internally, what we could do in partnership with our um, distributors to really, really Mm -hmm. drive this agenda forward. And, you know, I'm so inspired, not only by the energy of the leadership team on this, but I'm inspired by the transparency and the candor of my entire organization in telling me, in telling us what we need to fix. And we're fixing it with dollars, we're fixing it with processes, we're fixing it with external programs, we're fixing it with internal programs. It's gonna be a long journey though. And it's one that we are committed to as an organization. And one that, you know, I'll, I'll be super proud at some point in the future to be able to look back and say, we made these choices at a, at a really, really important moment in time. And as a result, we had an, a, a material impact, not only on our own business, not only on our own talent, but on the United States in a much, much more significant way. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And I understand that uh, these grants that you're giving are not just limited to hospitality or CPG or retail, but it spans you know broader economy. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yes, KK, wow. there, there was no specific industry as part mm-hmm. of the, the, the call for applications, right? Yeah. So, so picture any small business that is a, a staple of the community, from craft shops to barber shops to whatever it is, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really was open to any industry. And then the reason we picked these three great partners was because we knew that they would know better than us mm-hmm. where the need is most needed, most yeah. necessary, and whether that's financial need, mentorship need, or something else. And we have great faith in these three organizations. And it's why we're now putting another round of funding into this and excited to see about the impact that that second round of funding will have. It's very, very impressive. I think there's lots needs to be done. I know IRI also, we have begun several initiatives on this topic. And uh, I think it's so ripe that we all need to kind of step up and contribute and make sure the world is more equal uh, and more inclusive and more equitable uh, everywhere. Uh, thank you, Seth. I think uh, this has been great. I'm gonna ask you one uh, last personal question. What is one accomplishment that you're most proud of? And what is one word of advice you would have for somebody who is starting their career in CPG or retail or in luxury? So two questions, actually. (laughs) Um, Without question, the accomplishment that I'm most proud of is seeing the, the, the people that I've had the opportunity to work with throughout my career, getting promoted, moving on to, to bigger and better roles and then having material impacts in their own right on you know companies, sectors, whatever it is. No question no. that is accomplishment or set of accomplishments that I'm, that I'm most proud of. Um, the, the, the advice that I would give to anyone starting their career is simply um, to operate with both humility and empathy at all times. And operating with those two things allows you to learn more than you'd ever learn. Um, it allows you to impact teams and people more than you'll ever have impacted them without it. And importantly, with that, the business results always follow. And don't do, don't be humble. Don't be empathetic because you want the business results. Do it because it's the right thing to do for your team. And I promise you the business results will follow because at the end of the day, no business is successful without a super strong underlying health of a team that makes that business successful. So that would be the advice that I'd give someone starting out their career. And, uh, and hopefully it will help them have a, a, not only a more successful career, but one that they, they're more fulfilled by as a result. Very powerful. Thank you, Seth. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to talk to us today and uh, best wishes and congratulations on what seems to be a very successful start at Mart. And we wish you the best of luck for years to come. And I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the time together. Thank you so much, KK and Seth. Wow. What a powerful conversation, truly enlightening, inspiring. Just to recap on some of the themes that we heard throughout our conversation. Um, Seth, it was great to hear about your efforts to perfect the ultimate craft cocktail and how you've been enjoying um, expanded dinner time with your family. Notably, you talked about the importance of speed and agility and rapid decision making and the importance and the role that integrated data and analytics are playing and helping drive your business and drive that insight and that information down throughout your entire organization. You talked about your marketing pivoting and the role creativity and innovation are playing directly within your digital strategies and the powerful ways that you're helping consumers embrace those special moments of celebration 
virtually and across other platforms. Seth, you talked about the on-premise business and the incredible disruption that that channel is experiencing and your efforts to help support them throughout all of these shifts. You talked about using data and analytics to focus on the shifts in consumption and ensure that you have the right resources and the supply where it's needed most. Um, I thought your perspective around diversity, equity, and inclusion and your initiative around unfinished business was truly inspiring as you guys seek to support minority-owned businesses across industry. You know, at close, Seth, you talked about how the consumer is voting with their dollars and their experiences. And it's very apparent from this conversation that the efforts that you and your team are undertaking are not only meeting those expectations, but exceeding them, and you're poised for great success in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time. For our listeners and viewers, this recorded conversation will be available at our website, www.iriworldwide.com. We hope you'll take the opportunity to review our other COVID-19 thought leadership, including valuable reports and our exclusive dashboard of economic indicators. Thanks so much for joining us today and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.